I'm Susan Fox Gillis. I'm a recently retired judge from the Circuit Court of Cook County. If I were handling a case or when I did handle a case, when the young woman and her attorney came into my chambers, I would greet them, say hello. I would call her Miss Doe. Um, Sometimes they would start to tell me their names and I would interrupt and say, no, I don't need to know your name. In this case, you're, you're Jane Doe. This is how this is going to proceed. You're going to be sworn in. This lady over here is the court reporter. She's taking everything down. Your attorney is going to ask you the questions. When you had sex, why you had sex, who knew you had sex, how you got pregnant, weren't you using contraception, all these really invasive details about your life. Lori Chayton is a reproductive rights attorney at the ACLU of Illinois. Just imagine being 16 and knowing that this one of the most important decisions that you ever will have made in your life is dependent on whether that person either sitting up on the bench or sitting behind the desk and maybe wearing judicial robes, listening to the most intimate details about your life, um, and that it's in their hands. They get to decide, can you make the decision for yourself to have an abortion? How does a teenager end up in this situation? Standing before a judge trying to prove she's mature enough to have an abortion. And what does it even mean to be mature enough to have an abortion when the alternative is childbirth and possibly parenthood? Yeah, it's really problematic. It didn't always used to be this way. So what happened? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode. For Rewire.News, I'm Jen Stanley, and this is Choiceless. If you're just joining us, this is the second episode in the series, so please go back and start from the beginning. In the last episode, we heard from Jane, who at 15 crossed state lines in order to get an abortion without telling her parents, which she would have had to do in our home state of Massachusetts. At the time, New Hampshire had no such law. That was in 2002. Laws like these and all laws to limit abortion access have been very popular in the last 15 years or so. There are currently 38 states with parental notification or consent of abortion laws in effect. And New Hampshire is now one of them, meaning today, Jane would have had to travel even farther because more and more states are saying that minors are not mature enough to make abortion decisions without parental involvement. I sent our producer, Lauren Gutierrez, out in her neighborhood. She lives in Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. It was a beautiful sunny day last spring. The area was teeming with tourists from all over, and she asked them if they thought minors should be legally required to notify a parent when seeking an abortion. Do I think they should be legally required to notify their parents? That's a, that's a tough question. I would say no. They should be able to have an abortion if they feel they need to. I don't think so because it might press there to do something. Absolutely, 100%. Because if they don't know what's going on with you, they can't tell what's going on. They just see you get depressed. They don't. They can't help you there. I don't think there's anything wrong with talking to your parents, just um, kind of sorting out all the options. But ultimately, like it's your body, and you can do what you want with it. A lot of people had no idea these laws existed and hadn't really thought about the issue until they were asked. That was a hard question. It made me think about it for a second. Yes, I don't want to say that, but yeah. 
Why don't you want to say it? I don't want to say it just because, like, I mean, like, what if mom is like a, you know, I don't know, Carrie kind of, no, Carrie kind of mom. Do I can see the sin as surely as God can. We'll pray. No. You know, and says, you are a dirty whore or whatever. And, have to have the baby. Okay, I mean, there's just a lot of things. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of things. Like incest, uh, rape, uh, pedophilia, anything. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of factors. So it's really hard to, to, to answer that. And many of the people who expressed approval for these laws had negative opinions about abortion and premarital sex generally. Again, if you do not get the um, permission slip, that means that you can walk in there and do it on your own. And I think that that can cause more... Um, unprotected sex, knowing that, hey, I can just go get an abortion without my parents' signature. So since I'm going to be grown enough to go lay down in a bed without telling my parents or getting out, sneaking out the house or doing something that I shouldn't be doing in the first place, I need to be just as grown to tell my parents that I need to go and do something that I really should not be doing because I am, you know, one, be grown and be out there on my own anyway. Others who approved of these laws thought they just made sense. Of course minors should involve their parents in their health care decisions. Okay, other than that aspect of the notify parents part, yes. Um, because the idea of a parent is someone who takes care of you, um, still claims you on their taxes, you're still um, a child, and their decisions technically, you know what I'm saying, your decisions still technically fall upon them when it comes to um, hospital bills. But... Do minors always need their parents' consent for health care? This is where things get a little tricky. So I brought in Rewire.News' legal team and hosts of our Boom Lawyer podcast, Amani Gandhi and Jessica Mason-Piclo, to find out what rights minors do and don't have. Here's Amani. The law looks at them as, a, as, as under the age of legal competence, meaning they, they can't enter into contracts by themselves. There are certain rights that they don't have, that adults have. Um, Jessica, can you? Yeah, and, well, and the idea of competence is really, um, from the law's perspective, what this hinges on. And it's the idea of um, a mental and emotional maturity to be held responsible for your actions or to receive the benefits of certain rights. It really gets down to the sort of nugget is, does the law think that you're responsible enough to both have the benefits of what it would say is full citizenship and also the responsibilities, like Amani said, can you enter into a contract, for example, when you're 15 and be held responsible for it? As a, as a kid, as a teenager, you are allowed to consent to medical treatment. Like this, so let's say you're a pregnant teenager, right? You're allowed to consent to medical treatment for pregnancy. If you are sexually active, you are allowed to obtain a treatment for STDs. You are allowed to, if you're pregnant, stay pregnant. Um, you're allowed to give birth to um, a child. You're allowed to put that child up for adoption. But when it comes to making a decision as to whether or not to terminate that pregnancy, that's when the state requires uh, parents to get involved. Now, I don't think that's because abortion is separate than any of these other medical issues. I think it's because abortion is seen as inherently political. Abortion is abortion. You know, it's the sacred, political, inherently traumatic thing that teenagers are just too immature to make a decision about, which makes no sense. The American Academy of Pediatrics doesn't support these laws. Their research shows that while it's good for young people to involve a loved one in their abortion decision, that conversation shouldn't be forced. If experts in child health aren't drafting and supporting these laws, then who is? 
Paul Linton is an attorney affiliated with the religious conservative law firm, the Thomas More Society. He helps draft this type of legislation. I've been involved in the uh, pro-life movement for over 30 years. I worked at Americans United for Life uh, for about uh, eight years. Then I left uh, to go into my own practice about 20 years ago, and most of that has focused on pro-life issues, and also I got involved in the defense of traditional marriage. Um, my work consists uh, primarily of writing um, front of the court briefs, which are called amicus curiae briefs, uh, in support of traditional marriage and also the pro-life cause, uh, as well as consulting uh, and drafting legislation uh, and also scholarly publications. I think with respect to virtually any type of regulation of abortion, uh, the persons you know, on the other side of this issue, the pro-choice folks, uh, they, they do not want to compromise. They do not want to see virtually any regulation of abortion. And uh, that goes to, that could be something as uh, reasonable and as common as parental notice or consent with a judicial bypass. It could be informed consent. It could be a short waiting period. It could be a post-viability prohibition. Lori Chaitin from the ACLU disagrees, saying these laws are not about better health care or better communication. The truth is, is that the anti-choice movement um, works to pass these laws so that they will stop people from having abortions. This is not about actually better family communication. We know from the social science, from all the research that's been done, that most minors actually do tell their parents. Um, but for those who don't, they don't for good reasons. And we know that the anti-choice movement is not passing the laws to help them. They are passing these laws to block them from getting care. Lori and her colleagues knew that if the law went into effect in Illinois, it would have an even greater impact than it had in states like Massachusetts. Back when Jane had her abortion, she had the option of several surrounding states without strict abortion laws. Even today, though New Hampshire isn't an option, Maine and Connecticut are. But the Guttmacher Institute classifies the Midwest as extremely hostile to abortion rights. So um, the metaphor, the hole in the donut, isn't exactly mine. It was something that somebody else came up with. But it really, um, it's a good metaphor. Um, it is uh, the... The state of Illinois is the place in the middle of the country where we have access to reproductive health care in a way that we don't in any of the surrounding states. And more and more we're seeing um, new laws passed that make it harder to get access to abortion care, to contraception, um, that are just, just make it hard to be a woman or, or somebody who actually reproduces with female organs um, in any of the surrounding states. And so one of the jobs that we have here at the ACLU is to make sure that in Illinois, we expand rights and we preserve rights and we make it a place where um, people in Illinois can get the health care they need, but also people from all over the Midwest can come um, to get the kind of care that doesn't exist in their home states. Illinois' history with these laws began in 1977. That year, the Illinois General Assembly passed a Parental Notification Act, but a judge ruled it unconstitutional. Same thing happened in 1983. But in 1995, a law passed. 
Then the ACLU obtained an injunction in federal court because there wasn't a clear procedure in place for minors who needed the parental notification requirement waived, which would require judicial bypass, meaning that the minor would go before a judge and argue that she's either mature enough to get an abortion without notifying a parent or that it was in her best interest not to tell her parents. For years, Paul Linton and the Thomas More Society fought hard in favor of the law, while Lori and her colleagues fought hard to stop it. The ACLU of Illinois collected stories from states with parental involvement laws already in effect in hopes of demonstrating potential downsides of the law. So some of these young women shared their experiences and their real fear of being kicked out of their homes or um, being beaten by their parents, being sent back to live with their grandparents in India um, so that they wouldn't have the abortion that they were seeking. Um, although access to abortion is pretty prevalent in India, but nevertheless, that was one of the stories. These stories came from the testimony of counselors at abortion clinics and, and healthcare providers who had interacted with minors who were seeking abortion care and didn't feel safe um, or just didn't believe it was in their best interest to involve a parent or another adult family member in their decision. We knew that that was a really harmful statute, that that kind of a law um, puts young women at risk um, and it um, delays their health care, which puts them at medical risk, which makes the care more expensive, which sometimes means they never actually get the abortion that they seek. And there's no real justification for it. There's just no medical or psychological justification for it. And so we filed a lawsuit, a series of lawsuits, that kept that law from going into effect for about 40 years. But unfortunately, um, in 2013, we lost. And so in 2013, um, a law called the Illinois Parental Notice of Abortion Act went into effect and what that means is that if a minor in Illinois, somebody under 18, is pregnant and wants to terminate their pregnancy, wants to exercise their constitutional right to end that pregnancy, um, the state of Illinois says they have to tell their parents. And um, there are some exceptions. There are some ways that um, they, they don't have to. So, for example, they can go to court and they can tell a judge um, about themselves and demonstrate that they're mature and well-informed and that therefore they can make their own decision or that it's not in their best interest to, to tell their parents. And if they prove that to a judge, then they can get what's called a judicial waiver. But of course, that's a really hard thing for somebody who is, you know, in junior high or high school to do. So this is how you end up a teenager in court defending your maturity and right to get an abortion. After they lost the case and the law went into effect, the ACLU of Illinois created the Judicial Bypass Coordination Project. We knew, we had represented the young women of the state of Illinois for decades and protected them against the harms of this law, and we were not going to abandon them at this point. And so we devoted every resource we possibly could at the ACLU of Illinois, and frankly from our national office as well, and we trained lawyers who could help us to represent minors in um, these court proceedings. We, we set up a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week hotline. We trained volunteers who could, who could be the staff for that hotline, who would answer 
answer the phone and be the first line of screening. We trained lawyers throughout our office to be the second round of a more in-depth screening. Um, we set up a database and, a, you know, all of the technological things we needed in order to run this hotline. And we immediately also started to talk to the judges and the courts all around the state because we knew from our own experience that they were not ready for this law to go into effect. And we knew that they needed to be ready in order to protect the confidentiality of the young people who are going to be going through these um, court proceedings and to make sure that they happened quickly and that that minors could get in and out of court quickly and get back to the healthcare providers who were going to give them the care that they need. And so we devoted all of the resources that we had to set this project up and to try to run it as smoothly and as um, expeditiously as we could. Emily Wirth is also a staff attorney at the ACLU of Illinois, where she manages the Judicial Bypass Coordination Project. We want to um, help the the minor understand, you know, just what the experience of going to court and having to sit in front of the judge and, and tell your story involves. We explain to them the rights that they have and the protections that are in place for them um, in terms of protecting their confidentiality and um, and making sure that this is going to be a relatively fast process if things go as they are supposed to, which doesn't always happen, but um, that's how it's supposed to be. Uh, and then we'll also explore with them um, facts about their life and their their circumstances and um, and help them figure out what they need to tell the judge to show the judge that they are uh, mature, that they um, have taken responsibility for various things in their lives and are prepared to take responsibility for this decision as well, that they've thought through all of their options, that they understand the procedure that they'd like to have from a medical perspective, and um, to explain their family circumstances so the judge understands why they've chosen to pursue a judicial bypass rather than notify a parent. But what about teens who are homeless, who've already escaped unsafe homes, or who are afraid that they'll become homeless if they tell their parents about an unplanned pregnancy? The Chicago Coalition for the Homeless found that in 2016, there were more than 11,000 unaccompanied homeless youth in Chicago alone. A 2005 study by the same organization found that of the 25,000 homeless youth living in Illinois, one-third blamed family conflict. Others said they were physically or sexually abused by a parent or adult family member, and three out of five said they had been victims of violence within the year prior. Parental notification is specific for abortion, not other pregnancy outcomes. Why is that? Former Cook County Judge Susan Fox Gillis has heard many judicial bypass cases since the Illinois law went into effect in 2013. I served there for 18 years in uh, the county division. In that division, we heard elections, adoptions, mental health commitment hearings, mental health uh, medication hearings, um, abortion bypass cases, name changes, uh, and a variety of other miscellaneous things. People always said that adoptions are the happiest place in in the court system. They are the happiest place if there's no contest, but a contested adoption, I would contend, is one of the worst things you have to handle. But as somebody who's heard both cases, do you think that the decision to have an abortion is more weighty or deserves more maturity, needs more maturity than the decision to place a child for adoption? No, I don't. I think that um, if you're mature enough to make the decision to give up a child and you've carried them to term, then certainly 
that is a bigger decision, a bigger emotional decision, has many more ramifications for the the girl, I think, than uh, proceeding with an abortion. So what's the purpose of these laws? Is it to foster good communication? The research does tell us that youth who feel comfortable will have the conversation. And so we just go back and say, and what about the youth who don't? Tiffany Pryor is the executive director for the Illinois Caucus for Adolescent Health. They were founded 40 years ago, originally to serve pregnant and parenting teens in Illinois. And they've expanded their mission to provide resources and education for all youth to learn and take control of their bodies and sexuality. If you're not having that conversation about um, identities or sexuality or sexual behavior, um, from the start, why are you going to have a conversation around abortion access? Like we're jumping here, which is why we all like before we can get to the abortion conversation, we have to start with what does conversation actually look like between these two folks or these however many folks? How are we starting that before we can say, oh, let's talk about abortion now? Because we know abortion is polarizing for people that you can't just jump straight to it. Everyone I spoke to who has advocated against these laws or been affected by them has said the same thing. A state-mandated abortion conversation isn't a healthy one. So what about the people in favor? Is good communication really what they're after, or is it about limiting abortion access? I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, In the last full year, when it was not in effect for any part of the year, if you compare the numbers of abortions on minors in Illinois, on, I should say on Illinois residents uh, in Illinois, and compare it to what it was for 2016, which is the last year for which we have data from the Department of Health. So we're talking about, it's a four-year period. The numbers of abortions on minors dropped by more than 50% in four years. Supporters of the law believe that it has sent a message that abortion is wrong, and that's helped lower the abortion rate. It's true, the abortion rate in Illinois has been on a steady decline, but so has the teen pregnancy rate and the birth rate. And while the decline in abortion rate has continued through 2013, it started going down long before that. Still, stigma can keep people from accessing abortion, or it can make a person delay seeking care. Kush Thompson is a 23-year-old activist and poet from Chicago. At 15, she was pregnant and decided she wanted to get an abortion. Men make laws restricting women's rights all the time, and some of these laws hit young people even harder. They're too young to vote, but they are organizing, and in Illinois, ICA is helping them. Each year, a pro-choice advocacy organization, the One in Three campaign, hosts a live stream speakout where people from around the country tell their abortion stories. ICA's Tiffany Pryor brought Kush and other activists to D.C. for the 2018 event, and Kush shared her story. You know, um, long story short, the thing happened, and uh, I ignored my body changing for about four months. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was already, um, I guess, what sets me further apart from most of the stories that I hear, is that I actually was showing, and, like, I actually, like, had a body in me and not just, like, a blip of something. Um, so yeah, when I finally decided to, uh, acknowledge that my body was changing and that, like, my period wasn't missing for some abstract reason, I just tried to steer away from parental guidance at all. Mm -hmm. Um, so I confided in my older sister, um, and she took me to Planned Parenthood downtown Chicago, um, 
And, you know, we had the test and I got the confirmation and I was devastated. Like just the moment that the word pregnant hit my ear, I broke down. Like I knew it this whole time, but the stigma that we're talking about was something that kept me from acknowledging it. Like, no, it has to be all these other reasons. It's not pregnancy because I only had sex with this person one time and how could that be a thing? Um, so yeah, broke down, uh, just started thinking about like all the girls that I went to school with who decided to have their babies and who went to school and like had their bellies under their school uniforms. And I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm a black girl on the west side of Chicago and this is what everyone expects from me. And maybe I expected it from me and I'm just disappointed. I'm just sad about myself right now. Kush wasn't legally required to involve a parent because her abortion was in 2011, two years before the Illinois law went into effect. She says the stigma delayed her care, and that made it more expensive and invasive than it would have been if she made an appointment sooner in the pregnancy. She ended up having to involve one of her parents to help her pay for it. You know, my sister, we're from low-income family, uh, and didn't have the funds. So we called my dad, um, I think a few days before, and he was just, oh. <laughs> it was everything that I expected from my mom times 10. Um, and like, he really was pushing me to not do it. And he was just like, oh, I'm so disappointed in you. Like kept saying my name over and over again. Like, oh, how did you let this happen? And I was like, I'm on the other end. Like, uh, I just, I can't do this. I can't. I'm 16. I can't. I'm not even sure if I said any other words besides that, but I cannot do this. I'm 16. I cannot do this. Kush was determined to have the abortion. She made her choice, and she was going to do it regardless of the stigma. But for young people who think that telling their parents will either mean that their parents will prevent them from having the abortion or that telling them could put them in danger, it's up to a judge to decide. Emily Wirth from the ACLU of Illinois' Judicial Bypass Coordination Project says it's unclear how a judge decides whether or not someone is mature enough to have an abortion. There isn't a consistent reason, and that's because... A lot of judges are basically looking for pretexts. They don't want to be in the position of giving someone permission to have an abortion for personal moral reasons or for professional reasons. And so a lot of times the reasons that they give are pretty obviously pretextual, like the minor, the teenager speaks like a teenager and doesn't present as a 35-year-old and therefore doesn't meet the standard. Or the fact that the teenager does not want to involve their parents is a sign somehow that they are not mature enough to be making this decision. Um, so so the reasons can often vary, and, and it would appear to me that one of the reasons that they there isn't necessarily a consistent sort of theme in those denials is because judges will seize on what they can if they aren't so inclined to deny the petition. And Paul Linton thinks there should be a higher standard of proof in these cases because the fetus has no one to defend it. Because this is an ex parte, that is a one-sided proceeding, there is nobody on the other side. Nobody is, nobody is contesting what she is seeking. There's no you know, party on the other side, no defendant, if you will. Because of that, it's reasonable to impose a higher standard of proof because the only person in court who's presenting any evidence is, is her. 
Whittling away at the judicial bypass option could create an effective ban on abortion for many young people. These laws are common. There are only 12 states that don't have laws like this on the books. Again, Judge Susan Fox Gillis. I think the laws are common because uh, we have a very paternalistic society um, and because people have very, very different and very strong beliefs on the issue of abortion. And um, this, in, in many people's minds, provides some oversight that people, some people think is necessary. Others don't agree with that. Uh, but I think that's why they're so com- the laws are so common. I mentioned before that um, people came from out of state where uh, from states where where teenagers couldn't get preg- uh, couldn't get um, abortions, so I, I always found that interesting and 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 very sad that they had to travel from one state to another. Holland didn't mention that the abortion rate among teens has halved since the law went into effect in 2013. But what he didn't mention is that the number of people who come into Illinois for an abortion from out of state has increased by 53 percent since 2014. Even with the parental notification law in effect, for many Midwesterners, it's easier to travel hundreds of miles to Illinois to have an abortion than it is to get one in their home states. And in the possible event that Roe v. Wade is overturned in the next few years, that number will likely rise, as Illinois recently passed a law to keep abortion legal even if something happens to Roe. Even now, many Americans can't access abortion care because of their zip codes. In the last episode, Jane talked about how, as a freshman in high school, she traveled out of state for an abortion to avoid having to tell her parents about it. She was only 15, and she was afraid. Did you tell your parents? Not until way later in life. Check out the next episode of Choiceless to hear what it's like telling parents the hard stuff. And I was like, I said, I said, ah. Choiceless is a production of Rewire.News. We're the leading nonprofit journalism outlet devoted to reporting on reproductive and sexual health rights and justice. To stay up to date with our award-winning journalism, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Choiceless is created and produced by me, Jen Stanley. Music, sound design, and mixing are by Douglas Helsel. Mark Folletti is our executive producer. Jody Jacobson is our editor-in-chief. Additional production help on this season by Lauren Gutierrez and Saskia Henneke. If you like this series, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps more people find Choiceless. Thanks for listening. Choiceless.